tonight. Jude, we've been walking through Jude, and man, we're, we're round in the corner now. Uh, Jude 17, he writes, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of fire. Excuse me. And show mercy with fear, hating even the garment that is stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And that concludes Jude's epistle. Wow, it's been a marathon, hasn't it? Um, I, we've been walking through this for several weeks now, and I, I feel like at times uh, it, it felt like, for me anyway, like we were kind of slogging through this, this really short letter. Um, it felt like, uh, you know, walking through really sticky and thick mud. Not that Jude's message has been muddy. It's been very clear. Um, really short letter, though, but it just seems like it, we've been kind of, it's been so much kind of a drudgery at sometimes. Uh, you know, he's, he's got a lot of great things in here, and he kind of piles it on, and this stuff sticks. So, you know, every step you take, I don't know if you've got, I mean, some places in northeast Texas, we've got that kind of mud that just sticks to you. You know, it's full of clay, and every step you take, you, your feet get heavier and heavier. So, like, each foot weighs about 20 pounds, or you feel like that after you're done walking in it. That's kind of what it, I've felt like uh, as we've been working through Jude. I mean, he, he goes to great lengths to make sure uh, that we see and understand the danger and the destruction that comes from false teachers and false believers. I think I, I mentioned that last week, that Jude, how he, you know, as he was going through and he was describing these false teachers in the, in the previous verses before what we read this morning, he just kind of piles on metaphor after metaphor. They're, they're fruitless trees, they're waterless clouds, they're hidden reefs. I mean, he just piles on and piles on. And it just, you know, he just, he doesn't want us to miss the point. He wants to make sure we understand that there is danger, that there is, uh, and this danger is sitting in the table with you. <laughs> it makes us want us to understand what happens when we don't contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. When we allow and when we accept false doctrines and doctrines of demons. For the past 12 verses or so, Jude has been focused like a laser beam on these false teachers. Here's what they look like, guys. Here's what they sound like. Here's what they do. He's even given us multiple examples of the, the condemnation and the judgment that awaits false teachers and false believers. It's like a great big flashing neon sign that Jude's put out there. And he's warning, warning, you can't miss it. And then in verse 20 or verse 17, he kind of turns a corner. Or rather, Jude. He, he readjusts his focus away from the condemnation and the judgment that's awaiting the, the false apostates, the false teachers and false Christians, and he turns his attention back to those who are called 
beloved. If you remember, he started this letter with that. I'm Jude, who is a, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, and I'm writing to the beloved of God who are kept in Jesus Christ. And now, this is the first time we've seen it since like verse 3. He comes back and he says, But you, beloved, you must remember. For all this time he's been talking to certain people. Certain, remember he back in verse 4, certain people, certain ungodly people have crept in. These people, he calls them, these people, they're like the Israelites who were destroyed in the wilderness because of their unbelief. These people, like the angels who left their, their proper position of authority in rebellion. These people who are like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and they give themselves to you know, sexual immorality and pursuing unnatural desires. These people who rely on their dreams and they blaspheme the, the heavenlies. These people are hidden reefs. They're dangers. We talked about that Wednesday night. They're like dangers, and they're sitting at the table with you. They have no fruit, no spiritual fruit at all. They're uprooted trees. They're reckless and violent, tossed about with every wind like the waves of the sea. These people, Jude says, will face judgment when the Lord comes with the armies of heaven. Then he turns back, verse 17, but you, beloved, I'm not talking about these people anymore, I'm talking to you, beloved. You, beloved, you must remember, beloved. Turns back to us, to the beloved of God. This is something that you've got to keep at the forefront of your minds. Jude says, I want you to remember this. Keep this in your memory. Keep this in your focus. All of this, everything they've been talking about, all the warnings that he's been giving us about all of these people, they've already been spoken about by the apostles. You've already been told about this. The, the prophets have told you. Peter told us that the prophets have told us, and the apostles have told us about these people. You've already been told about them. They said, Jude verse 18, they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. So he's telling us, hey, you don't need to be caught off guard when you run into these people. This doesn't need to surprise you that they're going to have scoffers sitting among you. doesn't need to surprise you that you're going to have people following their own ungodly passions mixed among the sheep. You shouldn't be surprised by this. Recognize them for who they are. They're the same people the apostles have already told you about. They're the ones among you who are, in verse 19, they cause divisions. They're worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. And you find them in nearly every church. They have divisive ways. They cause divisions. What did Jude say back in verse 16? They are grumblers, malcontents, loudmouthed boasters. See, the people of God are called to be a little bit different than that. We're called to bear with one another in love. To be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's Paul's admonition to us in Ephesians 4. We read that this morning. We're not to be dividers. These people are carnally minded. Jude says they're worldly people. Which means that they have a mind of the flesh. They don't have a mind that is toward God. They have a mind that is toward the flesh. And Paul tells us in Romans 8 just how wicked the carnal mind can be. 
In Romans 8, verse 7, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It is a sad, sad thing, but we see this kind of thing all the time today. Churches are full of those people who have no regard for God's law. Because of that, they betray their claim to love God, especially when it comes to matters of sexual immorality and marriage. Out of their lips, they say, I love the Lord, but as soon as the Word of God rubs up against their sinful desires, it's the Word that must bow and bend to their will rather than them bowing and bending to the Word. I've dealt with this personally in, in personal discipleship situations. And, you know, sometimes the, the world will put you in seemingly impossible situations where you don't have any good choice, right? They're just like there's no, there's no good way. If, if I go this way, this bad thing happens. If I go this way, this bad thing happens. The only uh, uh, saving grace in either choice is that one of them is honoring to God. One of them is obedient to God. It's going to hurt, but at least I'm going to be in obedience. And I think back to the children, the Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They could either bow before uh, Nebuchadnezzar or they could stand uh, before God. And they said, we would rather... Uh, uh, offend man than offend God. We'd rather please the Lord than please man. And so what did that net them? That netted them being thrown into the fire. That was an impossible situation that they were in, and they had to make a decision. Who's, who's, uh, whose love is, is greater? Whose loyalty is in my heart? Is it for the Lord or is it for, for man? And that's what Jude is talking about, worldly people who they don't have any regard really for the law of God. They'll give lip service to it. But when things get difficult and they have to make a real decision about being righteous or being uh, comfortable, they, their comfort is what wins over. Back in Jude 19, he finishes up this description of these, uh, these scoffers. He says that they are devoid of the Spirit. Again, they're, they're fleshly, carnally-minded people. They, they produce no Holy Spirit fruit. Not Not really. I mean, the implication is, is a lot more than that, though. It's a lot heavier than that, though. Again, the Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans 8 that if, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you don't belong to Christ. Amen. That meaning you're not saved, you're not redeemed. So these people who have no regard for the law of God, who cause divisions among you, they're not even redeemed, and yet they're sitting in, at your table. It's sort of a final condemnation, the nail that, that Jude places in the coffin, as it were. But we get these contrasting pictures. We, he tells us, remember, guys, that there's, you know, the, the, it's already been told to you. You've already been warned that this is going to happen. There are going to be scoffers among you. They're going to try to cause divisions. They're, they're going to not regard the, the law of God. They're, they're going to be uh, unsaved people who call themselves Christians. And they're going to, they're going to try to you know, attach themselves to you and be among you. Then he paints a contrasting picture, uh, and he says, uh, he sets out that final example. And I think he does it, you know, because he's been talking all this time about these people. And then he comes back to this, but you, beloved, then he gives us this picture about this, these, uh, these scoffers. And he does that in order to get it immediately in our minds, the contrast between how they behave, how they act, and how we 
as people of God behave and how we act. People who, who truly love the Lord are pictured one way, and people who truly do not are pictured another way. Again, the Apostle Paul teaches us, again, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are not redeemed. And so Jude wants us to have a picture of this false teacher, this divisive, carnal, lost person who the church has somehow allowed to come in and they've put him in positions of leadership, they teach Bible classes, they, they commune with us in the Lord's Supper. And this image is placed in direct contrast to Jude's audience, who is the beloved. I'm writing to you, beloved. So once again, verse 20, Jude comes back to that tender tone to give us the contrast. And he says, but you, beloved, talking to believers, true worshipers of God, he says, building up yourselves in your most holy faith. You know, we're, we're not dividers. We're builders. Amen. We're not dividers like the false ones. And isn't that what they do is divide? We are called to be builders. Paul gives us a picture of this in Ephesians 2, verse 18. He says, for through him we have access to we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. That's what Paul's writing to the Gentiles in Ephesus. And he's telling them that, that you are now united with the Jews in the household of God. Amen. So that we're united. And he, he, he says, but you are fellow citizens, you Gentiles. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Amen. Our unity together in Christ is a holy temple. So, so when Jude says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, he, he's certainly talking about that faith that, that he mentioned at the beginning of his epistle, the one that he's warning us to contend for. He's the faith that was once delivered, once for all, to the saints. As Paul says, this is the faith that is built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Christ being the cornerstone. That most holy faith. You building yourselves up in your most holy faith. That faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Not false teaching, not doctrines of demons, but the Word of God. The right and righteous content of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've said it many times, and I'll continue saying it. It's a drum I think is worth beating. I want to be a Bible person. I want us to be Bible people. If you cut us, we should bleed Bible. And what do I mean by that? I mean that it is important that we be such a people that are so saturated in God's Word that when things happen, you know, when, when cancer happens, when car wrecks happen, when any manner of trial and persecution happens, when we get wounded and cut and we bleed, what they see in us and what they hear from us is Christ-exalting, Holy Spirit-powered, Bible-saturated, unshakable, serious joy. There is a supernatural, let me tell you, there, some of you don't believe this. A lot of Christians don't believe. They don't believe in a supernatural, intelligent evil. They don't believe in the devil. It's amazing that you can read the scripture and not believe in the devil. 
But there is, church, a, a real, supernatural, intelligent evil out there. And he is your enemy. And he is out to get you. He is hell-bent on destroying you and destroying your faith and destroying your joy and destroying your assurance and destroying your peace. If he can do that, he's got you. And Jude says, don't let him do that. Build yourself up on the rock that is sure and cannot be shaken. Build yourself up in the joy that is given in Jesus Christ so that by your life or by your death, Christ may be exalted. Whether I'm up on the mountaintop or whether I'm down in the valley, Christ may be exalted. Whether you look at me and say, man, I wish I had that, or whether you look at me and say, oh, that poor guy, Christ may be exalted. And I want you to know, church, that that kind of building is a process. It's not something that just happens overnight. Surely redemption happens. We are made new in Christ as soon as we come to faith in Him, as soon as we welcome Him to be Lord and Savior. He regenerates us into something new. But just like infants have to learn how to walk, we must learn how to process and how to deal with the things that life throws at us. We're not always going to get it right. We're not always going to respond to things in a Christ-exalting way because we don't know how. You know, the more immature we are in the Scripture, the younger we are in the Word and in our walk, the, the more immature our response is going to be. The less from faith it might be. The enemy is going to try to hit you in areas where you are weakest, in areas where you, you still haven't managed to surrender to Christ fully. You still haven't managed to crucify that part of your flesh. He's going to try to expose you as a liar. He's like, ah, oh, you fell here. You had doubt here. You're not really a believer. He's going to try to expose you as a liar. And he's going to try to accuse you. In fact, that's what, that's what the name Satan means. It's the accuser, the, the adversary. It's more of a title than a name. He stands to accuse the brethren. I was uh, talking to a brother just the other day who was telling me about a a difficult time he was having with a certain temptation. You know, it's not a temptation if you don't already want it. That's not meant to condemn you. That's meant to help you. So if you're being tempted, this is tempting me, this is something that you already want, which means it's a weak area. It's an area that needs some construction work. It needs some building, right? There's a problem that's been exposed, and now there's some excavation and some repair that is needed. And sometimes it can be dirty, heavy, painful work. Amen. We have to dig out that, that bad foundation, the selfish, sinful desires. We have to replace it with a, the foundation that is the rock of Jesus Christ, the rock of the Word of God, and build on that. And sometimes that can be painful. Back in Jude, in verse uh, 20, that work is not always easy to do, that building, so that's why Jude doesn't leave it there. He doesn't say, you, beloved, building yourselves up. Uh, he continues with another image that contrasts from the false teachers, the false ones. He reminds us that people of God are people of prayer. 
So where he calls them worldly people, he calls us prayerful people. We are people of prayer. He doesn't just leave us with, you've got to do this work of building. He gives us tools with which to build. He says, first, building yourselves in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Not only do we stand on Scripture and build on the Scripture, but we have been given access to the Lord of all. This is such an overlooked piece of the Christian life, is prayer. Some of you think you can get by on, you know, praying, I don't know, Sunday morning when we do it for the few minutes that we spend in prayer here. And that's the last time you'll bow your head all week. I said this to a group of ladies um, at the Emmaus Walk that I ministered to. And I told them, if, you're, if you spend as much time with the Lord, let me reverse that. If your husband spend as much time with you as you spend with the Lord, your marriage would be in trouble. Husbands, if your wives, if you spend as much time with your wives as you spend with the Lord, your marriage would be in trouble. Prayer is a communication with God. It's like, it's like a conversation time. You know, you come home from your day and to work, and, and you, you need to have time with your spouse to connect. If you're not having time to connect, you're, I, I'm challenging you, you're, you're hurting yourself. You're hurting your marriage. You need time to connect, intentional time to connect. And prayer gives us that intentional time to connect. It is fellowship with God, your maker. And don't, don't overthink what Jude is saying here. It's unfortunate that in many circles in, in Christianity today, they have construed this verse to mean something beyond simple, earnest, faith-driven prayer. They look at Jude's challenge to us to, to pray in the Holy Spirit, and they conclude that he must mean speaking in tongues or something like that. As if to say that prayer is not Holy Spirit-powered and not Holy Spirit-enabled unless you are praying in tongues. And I, I flatly reject that idea. And I believe that Scripture flatly rejects it too. All prayer, if it is to God, if it is Godward, through faith, in Christ, it is in the Spirit. This is a very close parallel that we see in Ephesians 6. Paul is talking about the armor of God. And when he comes to praying, he says that we should pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. That means that all prayer should be in the Spirit. All prayer should be in the Holy Spirit, as Jude tells us to pray. Jude's not talking about some special type or mode of Christian prayer. He's talking about prayer that is grace-driven, faith-rooted, God-directed prayer. That is all prayer in the Spirit. How can I say this? How can I say that it is all prayer in the Spirit. It's because of what Paul teaches in Romans 8, verse 15. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Amen. Amen. It is the Spirit of God 
within us that bears witness with our spirit that we are children. That we, it is by the spirit that we are able to say, Daddy, Father, Amen. Father, God. Paul said it is by the Spirit that we cry to God. We pray to Him saying, Abba, Father. Prayer is by the Spirit. Don't let anyone use this text in Jude to try to convince you that there is some sort of spiritual class system among Christians. Oh, certainly there are Christians who are more mature than others. Don't don't get me wrong about that. But there are different levels. You aren't more Christian or more saved than this guy. As if to say that everyone gets a different measure. The Bible teaches us that we receive the measure of the Spirit. Everyone receives the measure of the Spirit. There aren't different levels. Let me just remind you of the parable of the laborers. You remember there are laborers that came in in the morning and then the middle of the day and then the end of the day. I mean, they only worked an hour or two and everybody got the same amount of pay. The question isn't how much of the Spirit do you have. Rather, it's how much of does the Spirit have of you. How much have you surrendered to the Spirit who enables you to cry, Abba? So all prayer is Holy Spirit prayer. If it is God-word prayer through faith in Christ... It's not to say anything about wishful thinking, which is something altogether different. Jude says, building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself. Building on that foundation of God's Word, earnestly praying to God in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. I will confess to you that I, I wrestled with this Somewhat. I'm a word guy. Words matter. And so uh, when I see language like this, keep yourself in the love of God, I, I begin, okay, asking questions. What does that mean? This is a command. The word keep is an imperative. Everything else before it is a, is a participle. It's an indicative. It, it, those aren't necessarily commands. What they are is telling us how to carry out the command to keep. It is a command that we keep ourselves in the love of God. The things that come before it, how do you do that? So it might be helpful for us to understand if we word it this way. He says, by building yourselves, well, he doesn't say that. I'm adding that so that you understand. By building yourselves on your most holy faith and by praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's how the the language works. Honestly, That's where it gave me pause, though. Because the way that Jude describes keeping yourselves as, 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 you know, as things that of our building and and our praying, it it led me to wonder what he means by keep yourselves in in the love of God. I mean, obviously he's talking about affections, because he's talking about love, agape. But he's telling us to keep ourselves. In love with God? Is that what he's saying? Or is he saying that this is about our affections toward God? Or is he saying that we must keep ourselves within God's affections toward us? Well, if we dig into the language, we get some insight. It's not always necessary to do that, um, but sometimes it can be helpful. 
The Greek literally translated says, keep yourself in love gods. If I would just take the words and put them on a paper, that's, that's how it translates. Keep yourselves in love gods. There's no definite article, the, in front of love, and there is no preposition of in front of God. It's just agape theos, which is love gods. Theos, in this case, is possessive, genitive, which means it, 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 ha it has ownership. So it is God's love. It is the love of God, as, as the translators have, have done it. They have attempted to make it make sense in the English, and so they've added the definite article, the, and the preposition of. Now, I know that's, you know, uh, I don't know, that's a bit clinical, but it's important. We could just as easily say, keep yourself in the love that is God's, or keep yourself in God's love. Okay, with that, I think it's safe to conclude then that Jude is not necessarily talking about, or that Jude isn't talking about our affections towards God. The love that we are supposed to keep ourselves in is God's love, His affections towards us. Do you see that? God, it's God's love. We, he said, keep yourself in God's affection toward you. Well, that raises some questions for me. <laughs> and again, I go to the Apostle Paul for clarification, Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that is a demonstration of God's love, a manifestation of God's affections toward us. While we were sinners, we were enemies, Christ died for us. And we know that he died so that we could be made sons and daughters of God. He died to offer us a seat at his family table to make us one with him. God loves us perfectly, and his love is not cheap. Look at what it cost him. So in that same letter in Romans, Paul talks about how powerful God's love is. This is a demonstration of God's love. This is what it looked like for you. Now let me show you how powerful it is. That same letter, Romans 8, 37, he says, what, what can separate us, just before that, what can separate us from God's love? Tribulation, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. What can come between me and God's love? Romans 8.37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, that's some assurance right there, isn't it? So why does James tell me to keep myself there? If that's the case, if God is... Okay, let me add another layer of complexity to it. Back in Jude, Jude 24. So we've gone to, skipped a verse or two, gone down to verse 24. In the, this famous doxology, Jude says, Now to him, and we know he's talking about God, who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And he says, God's the one that's able to keep you. And Paul says, ain't nothing going to separate you from the love of God. That to me presents a logical conundrum. 
God is the one who's able to keep me from stumbling. If God is the one that does that, how can it be me who does it? If God is the one that keeps me in his love, how is it me that does it? How is it me that keeps? What is, why does Jude tell me to keep? You keep yourselves. That's clear in the, in the original language. You keep yourselves in God's love. Does that mean that I'm able to leave God's love? Then I realized Jude's wisdom. You look at the whole letter. Remember, he's been going on about contending for the faith, avoiding false teachers and false doctrines. At the very beginning of the letter, he said, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. I wanted to write about the saving grace of Jesus that we have all come to know, about how wonderful that is, and about the life that that calls us to live. But I couldn't. I was compelled to write this other thing. And now, I think, is where he gets back to it. Remember in our study of James, when James said that faith without works is dead? He wasn't saying that works precede faith. He was saying that works accompany faith. They spring out of faith. If anything, faith comes first and then it gives birth to good works, to righteous works. So ordering your life according to the word of God is the fruit of our love for God in that it is submission to God's love for us. So when Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God, he's saying, submit yourself to God's love for you. And I think it's so appropriate, what I, we didn't talk about this, what Casey reminded us of this morning about being prideful in receiving. Some of us are so prideful, we can't let God love us. That's why I pointed out to you last week, Jude says, beloved of God, be loved by God. Submission to the love of God. Remember what Jesus said? He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So that is what love for God looks like. We, we found out what God's love for us looks like in that he loved us uh, he, so much. He, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll, you'll keep my commandments. The Bible teaches that we are to delight in the law of the Lord. It also teaches that we should pray without ceasing. That's the will of God. So James is calling us, I think, to humble submission to God's love for us. And in this way, we keep ourselves in God's love. Might we say in the blessing of God? Might we say that? That there are... You, you can certainly walk outside of the blessing of God. Just like I have certain things, you know, you're, those of you who are married, you have certain standards in your marriage, certain understandings about one another. There are certain rules. They may be spoken or unspoken, but you have a certain understanding about how we're going to behave, what this looks like. When someone else comes into the room, how do we behave? How do we interact with people of the opposite sex? or with other people in general. 
We have certain, and, and you can be in my blessing or you can be outside my blessing. My love is imperfect, so it, it, it may be that you offend me and I get angry and I forget that I love you. I just, if you're in Christ, you can offend God and he gets angry, but he never forgets that he loves you. Humble submission in God's love. And this is the way that we keep ourselves in his love. But he doesn't leave us helpless. Like I said in verse 24, he said, God is able to keep us from stumbling. I want to close with this picture of the great commandment that Jude leaves us with. So if you remember, we started in verse 17. Jude talks about the predictions of the apostles. He said in the last time, in verse, uh, verse 17, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. There was another epistle written around the same time as Jude uh, by Peter. It was Peter's second epistle. We don't know which one came first, Second Peter or Jude. They were written about the same time. But Goodness, they say almost the same thing. Peter took a lot more words to say it than Jude did. But they follow the same themes, the same examples that are given, the same kind of language is used. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1, he says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. Both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Does that sound familiar? He took a lot more words to say, would, would, okay, but Jude just told us the same thing. But then Peter goes a little bit further, and he tells us what, what is it that makes them scoffers? What, what do they sound like? He says, they will say... Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And that may be the temptation that you find yourself in or that you find others in today. What's changed? I mean, we've been beating this drum for 2,000 years now. What's changed? Where is your God? Where is your promise? That's what the scoffers Say. So they're, they're looking at the world around them, and they're not seeing great change. And for many of us, you know, particularly in this part of the country, as the, you know, those cultural tides change, we may be looking around thinking, man, it's not getting any better, it's just getting worse. Back in Jude, he tells us, you know, there's these scoffers that you've been told about. And what are scoffers? They're people who don't, they don't believe. They, they look around you and they, they doubt the coming of the Lord. They doubt the reality of the Lord. They doubt the promises of the Lord. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I could spend all day on that one, but we're going to let that... I mean, that is huge. Waiting is anticipatory, expectory. So we're supposed to wait with expectations. That, there's a, that's a ground for keeping ourselves in the love of God, just, just so you're aware of that. 
But I want you to see the dichotomy here. So then the very next verse he says, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. And I said I wanted to paint this in light of the great commandment. They asked Jesus, what is the great commandment? He said, first, number, number one, what is it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, right? Everything you got. Love God with everything you got. That is, what is that, verse 20? Beloved, building yourself up with your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that, spread, that leads to eternal life. And the second one is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. It's important that this is sandwiched the way it is because these others who have doubt, those are the scoffers he just talked about. The false teachers. So, okay. <laughs> have mercy on them. <laughs> Draw them, snatch them out of the fire, but don't in any way compromise the truth hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So we cannot have a culture that says we'll have nothing to do with you. But at the same time, we cannot have a culture that says anything goes. Amen. Amen. We have to be able to open the doors and say, come and, and, and meet this Jesus that we know. We have to be able to go to a brother in love and say, brother, there, you're, there's error and we need to correct this error. Brother, I see you failing, and we need to correct this failure. Let's walk with you. Let us hold your hand and go with you. And I will tell you from personal experience, that's not always easy. You won't always be uh, accepted for what you, you are trying to do. It won't always be seen with the right spirit. And people, like I said, when the Word of God rubs up against their flesh, it's usually the, the Word of God that they think has to bend because people can't stand to have wounds opened. I always look at it like when you go into a, an old building and, and the cockroaches are everywhere and you turn on the light and they just scatter. They can't stand it. Or when you've been in a dark room and you go outside in the sun and you squint, it hurts your eyes. That's what happens when you go to someone and you try to open the light to them. It, it, it hurts them. But we are to continue with them in love. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. So to others show mercy with fear, but we should never compromise the truth. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the, the uh, message of Jude. Let us pray, and then we'll dismiss for lunch. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus. I am grateful to you for this little epistle. It has been a wealth of, of treasure and a, just a... A great thing is we have mined it for its riches. And Father, I know that we haven't even scratched the surface over these several weeks that we've been walking through it. Lord, I just pray that you let this epistle rest on us. Give us clarity with it. Let it be a, you know, a, you know, a seed in our lives so that we can spring forth with it with new life, new understanding of what it means to, to walk in circumspect uh, righteousness with you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the food that's been prepared. We ask that you bless our fellowship and bless our food as we eat it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.